Welcome to Yak Babies, the only podcast on the internet sponsored by Jello Enema. There's always room for Jello. My name's Aaron. Here's my personal pals, Dave. Good morning, friends. Good morning to you. We have Brick. Good morning. Uh, afternoon. It's morning. It's still morning. Virgin afternoon. And of course, we have Young American Weekend. <laughs> Virgin afternoon. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. It is. It's 11.19 right currently. It's verging on new. A virgin. <laughs> yeah, did not say virgin noon. <laughs> what the fuck would that even mean? Uh, not, not much more than virgin. <laughs> let's not explore it. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's really dig down in this. <laughs> what, what do you think a virgin noon is? And tell me in detail. Folks, no, this episode is not about virgins. This episode is about white noise. <laughs> We're turning to our semi-regular feature, Canon or Canon. Uh, and this time we have... I would say a prominent title in American fiction, especially the latter half of the 20th century for sure. This is Don DeLillo's White Noise, a book that came out in 1985. It's DeLillo's eighth novel and the one that he won the National Book Award for in 1985. A classic, you know, widely celebrated, recently adapted into a film by Noah Baumbach a couple years ago that was met with mixed reviews. And certainly a... a, a was it? Yeah. People... <laughs> I think didn't like it for the most part, but there were some critics who who found something satisfying. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. I only want to, mm-hmm. but I've heard it's an interesting experience. This is a good one for the series because this definitely, I think, is a book that has approached canon status, if maybe isn't already there, but also is deserving of a, a re-look, I think, uh, to sort of examine like what does Delillo's novel say to us today? Does it still have that power that maybe it had back then when it was you know first introduced? Keep it in school, or blast that book into the ocean. Canon or canon? I want to start with your experiences with this novel. So have you guys read this before? Was this your first time? And if you heard it before, when did you read it? And what was that experience like? This is my first time. First time, okay. I had thought I read it, but I definitely hadn't, because it was new to me. Yeah. Mm, I read it uh, maybe 20 years ago. Was that in college or just? Maybe not that much. 15, maybe 15, 20 years. Probably sometime during college. Okay. Nico? Uh, I read it in college. Yeah, during for a postmodern novel class. Yeah, same. I read it for a postmodern literature yeah. class as well in college. So probably about 20 years ago. Yeah. I think it was my sophomore year, so that'd be about right. Yeah. I don't think I finished it, actually. When I read this, I did that was like, huh, this is, feels pretty new. And I was like, I wonder if I finished, maybe I didn't finish White Noise the first time. Maybe I got like three-fourths of the way through. I remember most of it. But then towards the end, I was like, this yeah. feels pretty different. So it's possible this was a this was a completion read for me that I just didn't even, wasn't even aware of. Yeah. It was a book that I always remembered, though. It really made an impact on me back then. Uh, and I thought of it as something special and, and sort of, you know, wanted to revisit. So I'm glad we did. You know, in the conversation of Canon, it'd be just reading it in period. I just, I just wanted to reread it and see kind of what my thoughts were now. I just want to, I'm curious to hear like initial takes, you know, just initial judgments. What did your, what did you guys think of the novel? <laughs> it's a lot funnier feel free, feel than share. I remembered. Okay. Yeah. Tell me more about that, Dave. You know, my, the, nothing about it really stuck with me from my first reading of it. So when, you know, I started going through it this time, I was laughing a lot, mostly at the dialogue, I think, yeah. which is like a little bit. First word that came to mind was cartoonish, but that's not fair. It's like it stretches a little bit yeah. beyond the way that people actually talk. It's but yeah. often in a very it's funny terrible. way, and I didn't remember that as as being my experience the first time. 
Yeah, it reminds me a little of Vonnegut, but more muted, right? Or, or less... Less warm. Yeah, less warm and less wacky. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a, I think, less warm is a good, this is a cold book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is pretty, it's pretty wacky. I don't like, know. I, I mean... Mo- especially, like, the first half. But not in, I think conceptually it is, there's a lot of, like, weird stuff, you know? But I think, the, like, in the actual tone of the, it just doesn't feel as, as sort of, I don't know, like, like maybe jagged, if that's a good description as Vonnegut. Hmm. It's more even. I don't know. It 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 it's like they come from the same the same tree, but they're they're very different. I, I'm not explaining it very well. Yeah, I mean, I kept thinking of Tim and Eric when I was reading this. Right, like it's a Tim and Eric sketch, kind of in the same sense of you can't. It is funny. You can't really figure out maybe why it's funny or what you're laughing at. You're getting a lot of information, but not all of it is, or maybe even any of it is super important or helpful it's just like there right and you're just like in this like very weird like tim and eric sketches are like psychotic like they feel like the work of a degenerate even though i think they're they're funny and interesting but you're like this is like demented and white noise feels similar to me mm. whereas vonnegut you know to extend this this bad analogy <laughs> is like a traditional like sketch like that's like a you know, classic satire or whatever, where it's like, it has a point, it has kind of like a, a human voice to it. And DeLillo just seems totally disinterested in, in any of that stuff. Sure. It seems like almost like antagonistic to the audience in a way, which I kind of like. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, t- do you disagree? Okay. Miguel, or tell me more about that. I, uh, so I, I recently just read a, th- a obituary of David Frost Wallace for some reason. I can't remember why. And it compared, uh, and it said that he was like the the descendant of postmodern masters like Don DeLillo and Thomas Pynchon. Huh. And this that comparison to me <clears throat> highlights how different like Pynchon is from DeLillo. So that was kind of my my thought process when I was reading this because like Pynchon is talk about antagonist to the audience. Pynchon is like fuck you. I don't care if you yeah. know what's happening. I don't care. I don't care if you know physically where you are. Like, what? Who is saying this? You know, X, Y, Z. Whereas Delillo is extremely clear about all that kind mm. of stuff, and it's just weird shit is happening. Mm. But like, you're always, you're always like right there, and you're always pretty, pretty clear where you are in the scene, what's happening, who's saying what, like all that kind of shit that a lot of other postmodernists throw out the window. So I felt, I felt that it, I thought it was kind of warm compared to you know, uh, other postmodernists because there's such a scale of go fuck yourself uh, <laughs> where, where in postmodernism, which is like, you know, you break down, you can break down the tropes, the, the you know, the themes of novels. And then a lot of postmodernists start breaking down the actual structures of the novel. And then that's when you really get a solid fuck you. And <laughs> DeLillo doesn't, doesn't break down the structures really, I don't think. I kind of agree with that. And I think that you're right, Nico, that it definitely, his prose style is so lucid, right? It's, you're right. It's yeah. very clear and very direct. You never, the images and the scenes, whatever, are, are very direct. But I do think there, so one thing I noticed about this that I really admired in this, this read through was how willing he is to not even bother with transitions <laughs> between scenes where yeah. like scenes change yeah. in like a paragraph or Purgatory, they go to a different, totally different time and place. And there's no, like, it doesn't have the sort of, like, 
you know, the schematic writing of like later on that afternoon, Jack went blah, blah, blah. It's just like, it just right. has information. And, but you never, at least I never felt lost in that. I never felt it was abrupt, but it was just like, holy shit, like this doesn't, there is no, there's none of that. It's right. almost like taking, uh, maybe not breaking the conventions of storytelling and novel writing, but kind of like distilling them down to like, what do you have to know? Like, what's the, what's the purity just like here's a scene here's a scene and like you don't have to worry about all the busy stuff in the middle because it's not as important yeah and i think he i think what he kind of does it also like on a at in this novel anyway is like he presents all these scenes and especially his protagonist this jack gladney the professor of hitler studies (laughs) is is like very earnestly like reporting all this shit and it's kind of you know, he gives you a lot of information that you kind of have to critically read to right. to to kind of get down to the stuff. And some of it's obvious, like the Hitler studies and like and and the hit the conversation with like Hitler, the Hitler professor versus the Elvis professor, and how they're both mm. they're like the same. Right. But then a lot of it is like you know, there's that whole extended scene where the professor of American studies is just talking about how like the first time he brushed his teeth through his finger and shit like that. And that's what they study is like all this bullshit. Yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite scenes for sure is that all the scenes with the professors are really good, but that scene in particular was so great. Cause it's just so mm-hmm. stupid. <laughs> like it's so mundane and insane, yeah. but they like, yeah, the treatment is so serious and critical. They're really sort of giving academic thought to this like mundane thing, which yeah. is, you know, I think obviously it suits the time for the critique, but also it's just like, it's just really funny. It's a funny scene. Yeah. I thought it was it also like felt extremely relevant. Like I, f- yeah. I, I kept forgetting that it was for, it was almost 50 years ago, 48 years ago. This was published, yeah. which seems insane. Is that right? Well, no, no, almost 40 years 38, ago. 38, yeah. 38. Yeah. Almost 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. But that's still, that's like, that's a, what, two generations. Like I was five when this came out right. and, and uh, so much of it, you know, the, the uh, consumerism, the TV, the worship of the TV. Mm-hmm. It seems like even create like what you can believe from TV and like how, you know, how TV influences the culture, like all that kind of shit feels extremely relevant still. Yeah. And, and the sort of the, the way that expertise is treated, like what you are an expert in and how the expertise is rendered, like the character, who's the, the older son, I can't remember the character's name now. Um, the teenage son, uh, who's like a psycho, who like seems sort of like he's like he, Heinrich. Heinrich, yes, that's right. He's like he is the he's like a proto incel like Reddit guy, right? Like he's like the guy who like reads yeah. the Wikipedia and becomes an instant expert on Palestine, and then goes on Twitter and posts his hot take, and then like two days before he wasn't, he didn't care about Palestine, but now he has this immediate interest. this like this crazy right. depth. Yeah. Yeah. It really uh, is prescient in the sense of like how we treat information and, and what information does to us when it's on yeah. full blast constantly. Well, what do you feel like would happen with this book if it came out today? Like, does yep. it feel dated to you guys at all? Because I look at like, if beloved came out today and would have, at least a similar impact yeah. that it did in the eighties. Um, and it wouldn't feel like, you know, a book from the eighties, mm-hmm. whereas this to me, and I can't, you know, really put my finger on why, but it feels like a book of the eighties. Like if it yep. came out today, 
you know, even as a book set in the eighties, it would feel something would feel, it would feel out of time somehow. Yeah. I, this is the thing I'm torn with specifically around the canon to canon question with this book where I think Nico's right. I think in a lot of ways it's, it's super prescient and it's still relevant, Mm. but also in some ways it felt to me almost like, like a slow apocalypse dead end that made more sense before nine 11 and the, and the internet age, right. Where like, this Mm. is the, this is the projecting out of television and, and cable and all those things that were happening without predicting social media which who the fuck was going to predict that right and so in in some ways it's it's right on the money because you know at the heart of it it's 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 capitalism and 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 whatever that that's that's really there uh but in other ways it feels it feels very connected to that branch of society and technology that really peaked in the late 90s right and Mm -hmm. then and then carries that forward you know which is it's hard to (laughs) it's hard to hold that against him you know like if if the number one critique of the book is he didn't predict 30 years in the future that's (laughs) that's pretty good but i think dave that might be that's the same feeling i had where it feels it feels both forward thinking and of a different time at the same time yeah dave tell Mm -hmm. me more about what you think the the 80s feel of it is to you like can you identify what that that trait or characteristic is for you? I don't know that I can. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I like. I I can't really explain like what this where this thought comes from. But yeah, I mean, even if this book came out today as like Delillo, okay, here's a book I wrote, you know, in 2023 that's set in the 80s. It would it would feel it wouldn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Something about it that I can't really I can't identify. I think the Hitler thing. stuff is a big part of it. Where in the 80s a good chunk of of the world was a lot like hitler had a different meaning in the 80s than it does now right mm-hmm. where someone who's hitler studies uh living amongst people who fought in world war ii has a different sort of with that 30 years of history move has it, it lands differently than it would to readers today right but maybe not i don't know but that i it, think a lot of people in a lot of people still thought hitler was alive at this point whereas right. i don't think that's still much of a thing <laughs> yeah i mean he'd be Obviously, way too. I mean, he wouldn't be alive anymore. But in the eighties, there were there was a large segment of the of the population that thought Hitler was alive. It was like a conspiracy theory. Yeah, down in Argentina, yeah. we're also not that far away from just actually having Hitler studies departments, right? Like, and so, yeah, <laughs> you know, like Jordan Peterson is essentially the Hitler studies uh, department at McGill or wherever <laughs> wherever the fuck he is in Canada, right? And and so, you know, like it's it just it has. How how that weirdness connects in in parallel to the word world that's being satirized lands differently now. But again, it, you can't hold you can't hold it against him to not predict predict the future. You know. Oh, totally. Right. Well, so I I don't think this this book is trying to be predictive at all, and I think that's why it feels so relevant to me because he's like, he's not trying to say this is what it's going to be in the future. He is just reporting what it is yeah. in 1985. I I think what feels like predictiveness is him being insightful, mm. you know, and saying like this TV thing, which right now only has three channels and like nobody, you know. It's, it's like a, a pale shadow of what it is now with hundreds of channels and 24-hour right. news and all the rest of the shit. But he sees, he still sees that hypnosis of the TV that that has come to be so so prevalent. 
and the same thing. And in that, you know, there's there's like echoes of social media and all this other kind of shit. Mm. But I think what he and I think why why it does date like Dave said why it does feel so to f- maybe feels a little dated is because it is so st- so detailed like steeped in details of the time and it's like from the very first the first image of the station wagons like we don't have fucking station wagons anymore right. yeah and like all all that kind of shit to the the brand names that he keeps like repeating like they're like a mantra uh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I I I think it's still the the reason it feels relevant is because it's not trying to say it's it it doesn't even really make any clear uh, judge judgment uh, of of those kinds of things. Yeah, all it does is kind of present this situation and like the you, you know from the Hitler studies to the TV to the right. to the you know, grocery store where like you're overloaded with brand names and all that kind of stuff. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're, I think you're right. I, I agree with that, with that reading. I, where I'm kind of stuck with the, like, would this feel relevant to someone who wasn't alive in the eighties? Like Aaron, if you took this to your students, would they read this and make that connection or or not? Yeah. I don't know. That's tricky too. Cause like, you're not one of them. I, that's where I'm at too, right? And so, well, yeah, not one, of them, but also like knowing how my students read and like what they read, like they, <laughs> yeah. like this. It's not just that the information maybe wouldn't hit them, but the the idea of the form of this novel, it's not something they have any hmm. concept of. They 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 read genre fiction and YA. Like that's what they read. Like this is like this is as alien to them as it could possibly get. Sh- should they read this? Well, yeah, that's that's just the question of the Canada Canada thing, obviously. Hmm. Right. So, tainted uh, uh, this question is also. I think the airborne toxic event section. If you like, it could have been published post nine eleven, and it, mm-hmm. you would have thought yeah. this was a writer reacting to or, yeah to yeah. culture nine eleven. It's it's. I thought it sounded a lot like Katrina too. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. All totally. those kinds of mm-hmm. disasters. Yeah. Yeah, and like there was a quote from Joyce Carol Oates. I was I found in my scrounging for information about this where she said Delillo was frighteningly prescient. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. Like he's not, I think Nico's right. He's not trying to predict necessarily. He's just very accurate and can sort of see the long trends and just like writes what he's going on. And, you know, there's almost an awe, I think, of consumerism in this book. It's not exactly critical. Like Nico said, I agree with that too. It's not celebratory either, certainly, but he seems like very impressed with information and just how it's coming at you. Like all the color, all the sort of detail that's meaningless or not kind of onslaught of it he seems like and i think the pro style reflects that too which i want to talk about in a second is like the kind of aesthetic value of the writing but certainly yeah it seems like he has this fascination with how information is being given to you and then what that might do to your to the like the cultural psyche i suppose Mm -hmm. aaron you you mentioned that your students wouldn't have any experience with the form of this kind of a novel can you talk more about that because i think the form of this novel is interesting at least yeah me too i think because I mean, we kind of were talking about this a little bit during our retreat in the summer uh when i had just finished it and i think nico you were just getting started on it maybe mm-hmm. that it doesn't have a formal plot right <laughs> like it doesn't have like a specific mm-hmm. there's no 
I don't know. It like, start, starts to towards the end, but it's... Yeah. I mean, the engine in this novel is death, right? The, yeah. the engine is is not like a mystery to be solved. It's like it's like asking about, like, what does it mean to die? Uh, and, and how do you feel about your own mortality, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like my students, this is maybe just like an overgeneralization and maybe it's unfair too. They are trained to read books. They're trained by reading YA and Harry Potter and, and Hunger Games and stuff like that. And they're trained to think in terms of like lore and world building and character arcs. Not bad things, obviously, but definitely not what DeLillo cares about here, right? He's definitely not there. What's the lore of this world? It's like the lore is commercial jingles, right? It's like a different, yeah. I would say actually that the world building is one of the best parts of this book. And the and and then one of my questions was, does Jack Gladney have a character arc at all? Yeah, I don't think he does. <laughs> Nah, yeah, but I but I think so. For me, the first the first half of this book up until the di- dilorama section where the with the cloud the, the airborne toxic event yeah. takes place. Or no, dilorama is the last section, but the airborne toxic event section uh, is world building. Is like he layers in kind of all these things, and he's like, "I'm the professor of Hitler studies. I also can't speak German." <laughs> like all this shit, and like his his kid his his family situation is super weird, which I think is also kind of a a criticism of America or a reflection of America, where he has like you know half of the of the first section is him like trying to keep track of whose kid is whose and whose mom is coming to town and which kid has to go where and like Bab- and then Babette is here and like whose kid is Babette's and like he has he has I think a total of three ex wives. Yeah. Maybe two ex wives and one current wife and five kids. Yeah. And like they're this weird blended family and like all that kind of stuff. But I but I thought that whole whole first half was really good. And then for me, the second half where it's like nothing else really gets introduced. It's just you have the extensions of all of these threads from the first half. And really all it gets boiled down to is him and his fear of death and and his assumption that he's going to die at some point, which is kind of absurdist because, yes, <laughs> you are going to die. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. So I, I really like the, the whole first part and I saw that as world building. The, the whole and maybe that was kind of more satirical but no i think you're yeah. I, I totally agree with you it there's a very vivid world that these characters live in it's just a different kind than the the one you get from a genre fiction approach where it's like here's the past history of this land like this land almost has no history right it's like it's all now it's all the present yeah and the supermarket is like the location where all this stuff takes place like i love mm-hmm. how often the chapters involve the supermarket <laughs> and like yeah. random people yeah. talking to them in the supermarket, looking at stuff, like having these like really strange yeah. conversations in the middle of the supermarket surrounded by stuff about like Elvis and Hitler or whatever. It's all, I just love it. And yeah, pop- right up until the end. Yeah. Oh, totally. The, very, the last the page last... is still in the back in the supermarket. Yeah. The first, <laughs> I think the first sense of the last chapter is the supermarket, the shelves have been rearranged, right? It's like, that's like the, yeah. that is the temple of the, the modern day, which I like a lot. Cause I also have a, strange feeling with the grocery store i go to it if i'm feeling yeah. like depressed or weird i will go to the grocery store and walk around and just like look at stuff i won't buy anything because it just has like a sort of like comfort feeling for me so maybe that's why this book <laughs> resonates with me in a deeper way <laughs> i'd mentioned before the aesthetic quality of the writing i want to talk a little bit about that something that i read about a couple 
found a couple of interviews with Delillo over the years, and something that came up in some of his answers for these journalists was when he writes, he's writing as much for meaning as he is for like the like rhythmic pleasure of the writing, right? That like the words he chooses, so the sentence structure, or whatever, is often as much about what he's trying to convey to you as much as information-wise, like a logos way, and, and so more like how does it feel to read it? Um, so I'm curious, like how did you guys, what did you think about the aesthetic? pleasure of reading this like how did it feel to you to read it not just in terms of what it's saying but like how the words uh just like appear on the page he even mentions in interview question that like sometimes it's like you're looking for a visual dimension of the page like how does it look to you versus what it says i really like it i think there's immense aesthetic <laughs> pleasure in reading this book and i'm, yeah. I'm noticing this too because i'm reading i'm just about finished with end zone as well which is his second novel mm. about college yeah. football and i just can like I can open the book and just read wherever I left off and still be very happy with what I'm doing. Even if I'm not totally familiar with what can quite keep track of the characters because there's so fucking many of them. Yeah. But it's just like, it's just the, it's like music. It's like, it's just the way it sounds like those long passages, you know, the, the intro chapter intros passage of white noise is celebrated for a good reason. Like that holds like litany of information, the parade of the station wagons and the students and what they're carrying, whatever. Does it kind of like that list paragraph style really mm-hmm. works for me? I like it a lot. Um, it just feels kind of like breathtaking. Uh, do you guys have a similar reaction or how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you describe it. it I, I think it's it's very comfortable to read and, it, and it's strong writing. Unlike the novel feeling of a time, the writing mm. doesn't. The, the writing feels very contemporary mm. or at least not. It, it doesn't fit neatly into like what you might expect of a of a, of a period of time or, or a or a, uh, kind of generation of writers um right I, I think you're right i think it just it's comfortable to read i think sometimes this book's kind of boring but even when it is it's still enjoyable to read mm-hmm. which is which is saying something yeah i think at its best it kind of reminded me of a good sitcom which <laughs> like will have like in my opinion the best sitcoms have like strong story writing and then also bits yeah like just comedic bits that they just put in there because it's funny and that's it yeah and his bits a lot of the time are at least tangentially related to the themes of capitalism death etc but like there's there's like the the most photographed barn in the world which is like a three paragraph bit that's a bit I, I think for for a novel, and now it's like one of the most you know famous postmodern ideas. It's like the most photographed barn in the world, which is what just photographed because it's it's like a snake eating its own tail. It's like just photographed because it is because it's the most photographed barn in the world, and that's its claim to fame. So people go there and right. take pictures of it because it's the most photographed barn in the world. Right, and and it's like it's not necessarily a comedic bit, but it's like. It's it's a it's just a little you know thing in the middle of his of his novel and there's there's so many of those studded throughout the the book that you you can kind of that that for me is is what I think his style and 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 through that I guess I I get the sense that he actually cares that you're having a good time yeah as opposed to most a lot of a lot of award winning writers don't give a fuck but yeah I appreciate I appreciate that he you know wants it to be 
pleasurable yeah. to read his book. Co- coincidentally, that was also super prescient because of that barn in Vermont that they had to shut down the road because all the Instagrammers kept <laughs> right. Yeah. pictures. Yeah. So it actually fucking happened. So it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, any number of like bars or restaurants that you like that get popular or go viral because of Instagram and all of a sudden, like the deluxe in Boston has to, they've imposed an hour and a half minimum or maximum on a table because people are coming there now because it all of a sudden popped up on Instagram and Ugh. it's like a destination for taking pictures now, which is, it's a great, I mean, the yeah. bar looks amazing. So I'm not it's surprised. Bar, yeah. It's like the bar, you know, from Instagram is, yeah. you know, you're going to take a picture and put it on Instagram and right. then it's the bar, you know, on Instagram. It's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You guys were talking earlier about those scenes with the, with uh, Jack's fellow professors and like, you know, I feel like you can lift those out of the book without really changing much, mm-hmm. but they're great. They're super funny and, and interesting like what are they doing there if they're not just like bits like nico's talking about i like that analogy yeah totally those bits are, are yeah. just like interstitials they're just like fun weird things that yeah that that's what you get in place of like a conventional plot i guess right is like the things that are around that are happening and the zero in for a little bit right. and zero zoom back out and move on to the next thing yeah but you look at them as a collective and there's a cumulative effect right? yeah it's right. like here's what's going on at this time and place right and every one of them is at least tangentially related to the themes right so even if it's not if you even if it doesn't move whatever plot there is forward yeah you know the 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 things with with the professors are are all like on the like there's kind of three big themes. It's like higher academic, uh, higher education, capitalism, and death. And it's like, as long as it's related at some point to to one of those things, it's like, and each one of them seems to be kind of a fresh take on one of those themes. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. I was looking for passages to read just to get a sense of like what this is. I think I found a good one here. Uh, this is towards the end. I don't know exactly what's happening in this chapter, but I like this passage a lot. That night I walked the streets of Blacksmith, the glow of blue-eyed TVs, the voices on the touchtone phones. Far away, the grandparents huddle in a chair, eagerly staring their receiver as carrier waves modulate into audible signals. It is the voice of their grandson, the growing boy whose face appears in the snapshot set around the phone. Joy rushes to their eyes, but is misted over, infused with a sad and complex knowing. What is the youngster saying to them? His wretched complexion makes him unhappy. He wants to leave school and work full-time at Foodland, bagging groceries. He tells them he likes to bag groceries. It is the one thing in life he finds satisfying. Put in the gallon jugs in first, square off the six-packs, double-bag the heavy merch. He does it well. He does. He has the knack. He sees the items arranged in the bag before he touches a thing. It's like zen, Grandpa. I snap out two bags, fit one inside the other, don't bruise the fruit, watch the eggs, put the ice cream in the freezer bag. A thousand people pass me every day, but no one ever sees me. I like it, Grandma. It's totally unthreatening. It's how I want to spend my life. And so they listen sadly, loving him all the more. Their faces pressed against the slack, sorry, sleek trim line. The white princess in the bedroom. The plain brown rotary in the granddad's paneled basement hideaway. The old gentleman runs a hand through his that thatch of white hair. The woman look, holds her folded specks against her face. Clouds race against the westering moon. The seasons change in somber montage, going deeper into winter stillness. A landscape of silence and ice. Your doctor knows the symbols. Like, what a fucking passage. It's so good. It's incredible. Like, I just, I, it's, yeah, I mean, it's bravura stuff, right? Just, like, being able to to write all that out and have that, like, effect on the reader. But it's just, nothing, none of that is tied to the plot, but it's, like, because it's tied to the themes. And it's just this, like, little, 
passage that just takes your breath away. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah, I love it. And that your doctor knows the symbols thing is so such a weird, such a dark yeah. thing where it's like he has the thing and he's just supposed to give it to his doctor and his doctor will decode it <laughs> and then tell him what it means, but he doesn't get to know. Right. That it's like so, every so he's just like fumbling around, like doesn't know how he's supposed to feel. Yeah, yeah. The, everything you do uh, in modern life is just trying to figure out some sort of code, but only having half the codex and just like hoping that someone else has it for you and then trusting them or not trusting them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you guys have other Delillo experience? Is this your your main Delillo, or have you read others uh, other works of his? I read Mao Tu in college. I remember liking it, but yeah, uh, I've read some shorter ones. Like there's one called Cosmopolis or Cosmology Cosmopolis, mm-hmm. I think. And yeah. then, uh, the, something like the hunger artist, I think. Mm-hmm. And then falling man, I read that too, but also, Oh, here's his list. The body artist, sorry. And body Cosmopolis artist. and falling man are the ones I read, but I also read, uh, and I, I've talked about it before the pr- prologue, I guess, to underworld, which yeah. is about the the baseball thing, the baseball that yeah, that shot her around the world, and that was excellent. Yeah, I have never yeah. tried to, nor probably will I ever try to read the rest of that book. But that that prologue is excellent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nico, any priors? Yeah, I say I think same, mostly same for me. Like yeah, the the prologue to Underworld. I've read a couple of his more recent ones, like Cosmopolis, mm-hmm. and I didn't like. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. He's he's tough, man. He's like, he's such a good writer. And then you're just like, sometimes you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Like, what, where, where are you going with this? <laughs> yeah, it's wild. I'm reading, like I said, I'm reading Endzone right now, his second novel. And what I was mostly, I think I mentioned this when we talked about it on What Are We Reading a couple episodes back. But what I'm struck by is how how very DeLillo it is right away, right? Like his, his yeah. style is pretty concrete in his second novel i haven't read his first so i don't know if it's even concrete there but like it's not like this was a evolution of form i mean i suppose it is but like it's the same stuff uh in enzo it's just it's the same style same rhythm same litany of stuff it's an interesting book there's this you know the, the baseball prologue from under underworld is prefigured in this long football chapter in Endzone, where he basically just recreates a football game for you in pro style and yeah. the text even says like the there's a bit the beginning of the chapter where the writer says to you like this might seem indulgent but like whatever fuck you <laughs> it's just like just enjoy it and it's like yeah okay and it's really great like it he it's yeah. a fun you're just like watching a football game in your head and he because he's so good at detail and specificity it's very clear what's happening all the plays make sense you can visualize them mm-hmm. it's the same way with that underworld thing the with the baseball right. game yeah it's like crystal clear yeah but it has the same yeah. issue that nico's saying which is like i don't know i don't know what i'm reading necessarily at any given time just in terms yeah. of where is this going and and like right. white noise where it's going is just fear of nuclear annihilation or and trying to sort of figure out like what it means to live in like the like <clears throat> atomic age basically but yeah it yeah. doesn't late stage capitalism yeah i read falling man Two. i remember not loving it but i it's been a long time. And then I read Libra, which I really loved and would like to read again, but I, I want to read more. I think I'm, I think I'm a little guy probably. <laughs> Do you think you'll read this again? Probably so. Maybe not for a while, but I could definitely see coming back to this. I read it very quickly for this one. I really tore through it out of just, I mean, I had time because it was my, the summer where I part where I can actually read, but just the pleasure of it. I just loved being in the chapters and then reading those passages. I couldn't, 
you, know, you can flip through and take any sort of long passage and read it just for the pleasure of it, I think, uh, which is which is fun. That's something I, I like in a book for sure. Well, yeah, I think we probably should address the the canon in the room, which is that there's a big canon over here. <laughs> Brought it specifically. I got it at a grocery store. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to bring it to help us assess this text. Uh, so white noise, does it belong in the canon of literature or does it go into a canon to be shot into the ocean and to be consumed by Poseidon? Of course, shout out. Let's see. Does anyone have the, the stats from our previous entries? I know we I, I do. Hang on. We're sp- okay. Let me, while he's, uh, looking that up, hang on. Let me read one of my favorite, uh, Oh, please bits yeah. that he does uh it's it's two of the professors talking and, and uh it says lasher said to murray we ought to have an official day of the dead like the mexicans we do says murray it's called super bowl week <laughs> and that to me is in 1985 was super bowl seven well really and to yeah to uh to, to already call out that super bowl week is like the americans holiday is is fucking wild to me, yeah. And I mean, I guess he was super invested in in football because yeah, he already had the entire novel about football, which is rare. And I think he played too. Yeah, he seems like kind of a sporto. Sporto. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I like that. That's all the Murray stuff is so good. Apparently, in the uh, yeah. the Bombac adaptation, uh, Don Cheadle plays Murray, and that seems like. Very interesting casting. I, I would love to see what Don yeah. does. That's some juicy stuff there. Yeah, I mean, we should probably watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to. Okay, so Brick, what are our, give right, us our so stats? We, we've had four uh, official votes in our yeah. new incarnation here. Uh, and just to remind everyone, we've decided that a, that a tie is a no. Okay. Uh, so you require a majority. Right. So the road did not make it, it was two and two. Mm-hmm. With Aaron, you and I voting four, and the mm-hmm. other two against. Uh, there, there by Tommy Orange also did not pass. Dave and I voted four, and Nico and Aaron against. Mm-hmm. Beloved did make it into the canon with three votes for and an abstention. <laughs> and then Linko and the Bardo uh, was unanimously voted. Oh right, I forgot that we did the uh, in the... our impromptu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, roll four vote there, but. Uh, <laughs> That's it. So this will be our, our fifth our, our fifth uh, roll call here. Physician. Great. I'll go first. Uh, I'm voting yes. I think this belongs in the canon for sure. This is a... If I'm going back to my, you know, Harold Bloom weirdness or, or like oddness thesis from the, the canon, the Western canon book that he wrote. And again, disclaimer, obviously Harold Bloom, a dick, a problematic figure for sure. I don't agree with his thinking on a lot of things but this one does speak to me this is a very odd book this has a very sort of strange feeling to it it, it has a certain thing i haven't read all of delillo so i couldn't tell if this is the apex delillo experience so maybe that's a question you know are there books in his bibliography that are stronger than this maybe in that regard you know it's the most celebrated the most well known but that might not make it the best but i do think this is this is deserving of canonization. To answer Brick's question from earlier, yeah, my students should read this. <laughs> they should be confronted with this. This is a weird fucking book. To and and if nothing else, you know, I read this thinking of my own writing and was like, God damn, this still has like important lessons for someone who wants to write, right? There's so much possibility here and so much he gives you such a such permission to to do what feels good in your writing and to not to worry about 
you know, does your transition make perfect sense? Like maybe it doesn't, maybe you don't need the transition. Maybe you can do whatever you want to. I like that a lot. So yes, this to me is a canon book for sure. Dave, about you? Man, <clears throat> I was running into such trouble because like I, I'm always like, my thinking is, okay, how many, like is the canon, does it have no limit? How many books can we put in the canon? Is it mm. like 20, are we, <laughs> are you know, worried does about it have space capacity? for only 25? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, if, okay, say the, the, we're going to choose 25 books to fit into the canon. Is this one of the 25 books out there that I think people <laughs> should be reading? And how are we looking at it now or 100 years from now? Or Yeah, I think we're thinking like, you know, in the the long term, without a specific sort of end date for it, it was like, you know, in the, in the long term, should people still be reading White Noise? Should that be on a reading list somewhere? Or is that, would that be something you would give to someone to be like, hey, this is a way to understand what like Western literature is? Yeah. <sighs> Fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing. I guess I'm going to put it in the canon. Okay. Tell us why. Okay. Similar reasons. The strangeness factor, what it says about our fears, mm. the writing is just good. Like it's, it's like an exercise in how to write dialogue. <laughs> and yeah. The dialogue in this book is fucking great. Yeah. But like I'm not going to go around recommending this book to many readers. Hmm. Right. Cause I don't, I don't think they're like you were talking about with your, your students, Aaron, it's just like, I don't see a lot of people being drawn to this book now or particularly probably in the future. Right. doesn't mean it shouldn't be in a canon, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I'm right on the, I'm right on the fence with this one, man. Yeah. Gotcha. I guess you can see the canon as like a way to protect it so that people could read it in the future. Like if it sort of gets remembered, mm. uh, so it would be available as opposed to disappearing. But yeah, I see what you're saying. That makes sense. Mm. It's definitely not, it wouldn't be like top of the list recommendation for someone if they're like, hey, what's, what's the you read recently you liked? It'd be like White Noise by Dante Lillo. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. a weird book. Nico, what about you? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I'd keep it in the canon. Yeah. I think it's uh, it's got a lot of juice. I don't know. There's a lot of uh, There's a lot of things that I think you could talk about. Like I think we could keep talking for another half hour mm. about all this kind of shit. Like, I really like the the part the part where Jack talks about why he named his kid Heinrich and like goes through all these things. It's like, well, it's a strong German name. It's like, motherfucker, you named him after Himmler. Yeah. Like, you don't <laughs> fuck around with this shit. Like, you named him Heinrich Himmler because you couldn't get away with naming him Adolf. And that's it. And he's like, well, it's just a strong, it's one of the most common German names. And it's just like that, that kind of think, thinking is just so relevant to still today, to American culture, I feel like. I feel yeah. like that kind of thinking is, is like <clears throat> baked into Americans more than it is to any other culture that I, I don't know I've come across. <clears throat> so yeah, I'm a yes. And I also predicted what everybody would do. Oh, wow. Okay, hold on to those predictions. So we can vote. <laughs> I, I want to see. Yeah, uh, you <laughs> doing see your break does. Yeah, doing your was uh was that was the Carson bit Karnak? Karnak. Yeah. Karnak. This is, Jesus, this is... talk about dating us. <laughs> talk about 1985. <laughs> All right, Brick, take us home. What you got? I, I similar to Dave, am, am torn. I think it's a great book, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it, canon-wise. I feel a little, even though it's nothing like this book, I feel a little bit like I think I would feel if we did Ulysses for... Like, I'm, I'm stuck mm. on the canon or canon aspect of this. If you just ask me if it's a good book, the answer is yes. Right. Like, if we were doing Ulysses, which is 
one of my favorite books, I think I would vote no because it's a book you need you need a reason to go dig up and to read it for a purpose. Hmm. And I and I think as time goes on, this is that book too. I, I really like Nico's reading of the book. And now that I've heard Nico's reading of the book, I wish I had read it the way Nico read it when I read it and I would feel differently. <laughs> hmm. So I don't know. I'm, I was thinking of flipping a coin, but now, well, one, I'm curious of what Nico's predictions are, but uh, looking at this list so far, I'm the only person that has not weighed in a no vote. <laughs> and so I can be a chicken shit and totally safe knowing that I can vote no without altering. I don't need to pull a John McCain right here. So just just for the sake of not being the guy that always votes yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna sure. vote no. And then judging by Nico's face, he called it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so he's close. I, I was I was sure about uh, me and Aaron and and Brick. Me and Aaron voting yes and Brick voting no. You didn't like this book. I mean, that's pretty no. clear. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, and Dave, I thought was leaning no, but I was, but I was unsure about him. I would say I was probably leaning no when we started this episode, when they, we started recording. Yeah, that's funny because I thought it's happened like a if, couple times. If we came into this deciding first, I would have said no, most likely. Yeah, yeah. that was what happened with the road. I came in thinking it was going to be a no, and then as we discussed today, it became more of a yes. So I do like how mm. our conversations are are having an impact on our views, which is fun. We're so persuasive. Well, Delillo, congratulations <laughs> in the can and white noise. Glad to have you in how, good company. How do we let him know? <laughs> good. So, I, and one of the users said that he, he doesn't have email. He only communicates via fax. So we got to find his fax number and send him a fax mm. with a big thumbs up. We'll have to go back to the 1985 setting of this book. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's appropriate. <laughs> send him a fax. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, hopefully we don't curse him to death like we did Cormac the Comfies. <laughs> It's come back with comfy. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> come to come low. Yeah, we'll have to. <laughs> in the interview, they was talking about like his technology. So the interviewer was like, "So are you kind of like a recluse? Are you like totally detached from the world?" And he was like, "No, no. I still like have friends and stuff, and they have email, and I have an iPad." And I was like, "Wait, what the fuck? You have an iPad, but you only communicate via fax?" And he was like, "Well." I look up stuff on the iPad if I want to do research. So I just love the idea of like fucking DeLillo writing a book on a typewriter and then being like, oh, what year did this come out? And like looks up some like movies publication date on his fucking iPad and then back to the typewriter. It's yeah. fucking perfect. Yeah. He also called it the DVD, which is, I think, perfect old man uh, phrasing. He loves movies. Crazy. It's wild that he was uh, like seemed to be so perceptive in about 1985. Mm. Yeah. And now just like, I have an iPad that I use to Google things sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. It's like he just lost the plot. Yeah, you must just, I mean, maybe you reach a point where you sort of, your brain's less flexible maybe and you're just like, that's kind of like the where you, the place that you were in. It's mo- just moving on without you and you can't keep up anymore. I don't know, yeah. man. If your head generates this book, you probably want it to move on without you though, right? <laughs> probably so. Yeah. He mentioned that he, you know, he didn't start writing novels at least until he was like almost thirty, uh, which is interesting to me too. That he got a, you know a later start than you might expect, um, but it's gonna make sense. Where is he now? Like ninety? Gotta be something like that. Maybe in his late seventies. Let's see. Because what the first one was? Oh yeah, like nineteen seventy-one or something. Yeah, he's eighty-six. Wow. Yep. Oh yeah, I was gonna look at that book of word thing. Let me find that because that was funny. Are we? Have we stopped this episode? No, uh, not. not yet. 
<laughs> this will be worth it. Don't worry. This is the um. Uh, let me look things up. <laughs> 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 let me get my iPad. <laughs> what year? <laughs> God damn it! Why can't find the? Well, it doesn't matter. Whatever. It wasn't that interesting. It was. What do you guys, what do you guys make of the title? I think it's pretty spot on. Oh yeah, I had a joke about this. What? Oh, uh, yeah. What do you? Uh, I saw it was called White Noise. Is that? Is this book about podcasting? <laughs> yay, yay, yay. All right. Talk about white noise. A podcast could be considered white noise. <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the the intro... Did you? Uh, did any of you read the intro by Richard Powers? Mm. I did not. Is it worth it? We covered why in a previous... <laughs> Yeah. I didn't have it. Yeah, it's worth reading. Uh, I think they did a pretty good job of, of sussing out some of the themes and everything. And he talks about like this, like the book is like static, right? Like a lot of the way that right. the prose style is like the passages we read are having sort of like static effect. It's like, like there's a hum to the way that the information is given to you. And it's, it's kind of like constant, you know, thing that you can't get away from that sort of penetrates your thoughts maybe in some ways. So yeah, that's what I think it probably is. Huh. Yeah, I mean, he comes out and, and, and says it, too, where, you know, it describes white noise as the, the sound and experience of death somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, I think that coupled with television, right, and the static and the and the droning, the droning kind of background noise that distracts mm-hmm. everyone from living, right? Like, I, most of the people in this book are kind of already dead, even though they're worried about dying, right? Because they're, they're they have this kind of, they're like, I don't know, it's like, is death the absence of living? Because they're just going through the motions in, in this in this static, fuzzy space, you know. Um, right. Part of me kind of wishes for those yeah. good old days again. Where Nico, you know, you said late stage capitalism. I think a lot of people thought it was late stage capitalism then, and just now we're in a much worse horror show now. Years. Yeah. Now instead of white noise, we just have everything at maximum decibel, uh, right. which is a thousand yeah. times worse. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's a it's a spot on title. I think. Yeah, I I didn't think that the novel was itself like white noise, but I kind of got the sense that it was like the experience when you had like an old radio with a tuning dial, mm-hmm. and you go like through the all the stations, and you hear like these little bits of each one, and then in between you hear the white noise, and the white noise in between like each of these little tiny scenes or whatever is that is death just like always there in the background but right. like yep but what you're actually hearing and what you're listening for is like the this the scenes or the stations that you come across just for a second as you like s- twist the dial you know yeah, yeah and trying to to find different signals and channels right trying to like to decode that information again you're trying to tune in and then when you can't tune in you're getting this like incomprehensible mess of stuff uh so looking at i finally found it the national book award finalists for the year that white noise won a book by hugh nissenson called tree of life which i have never heard of and an ursula k Le Guin book called always coming home which sounds pretty good ursula k Le Guin, of course i wanted to draft her to play shortstop in my literary baseball team draft that we end up doing what we were talking about a little bit before the episode <laughs> it is funny to go look through the national book award nominees and even winners and see who who's there, um, and what what books were celebrated and then disappeared entirely from collective memory. For instance, J. F. Powers' "Wheat That Springeth Green" was nominated in 1988, 
and I have never heard of that writer or that book at all. Just, I don't know, a humbling experience for anyone who wants to think about success in writing. Do you want to look at the, I'm looking at the Pulitzer for 1985. Oh yeah, what you got? Alison Lurie won for Foreign Affairs. And the runners-up were Diana O'Hare, O'Hare maybe, for I Wish This War Were Over, and Douglas Unger for Leaving the Land, neither of which I've heard of ever. Never heard of any of those at all. Nope. When they announced the Nobel Prize this year, I did think about a project where we go through and read one work from every Nobel laureate in literature. And I was like, I started looking into it to see like where it starts from like 1900 or whatever. And the first one, some poet. And I was like, oh, okay, some French poet. And I was trying to find like collections and it's impossible to find anything. So I was like, maybe to start a little bit ahead of yeah. 1900 and see where we go from there. And then the second one is like some dude who wrote five volumes of the history of the Roman Empire. And it's like, I downloaded a digital book of the first one and read the first, like, even just the intro was like, mm. nope. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna happen i think i heard about that guy on instagram <laughs> <laughs> right yeah where all men think about the roman empire the new york times wrote a trenchant article about that guy's thoughts with the roman empire <laughs> insane well that's our thoughts on white noise folks let us know what your thoughts are by contacting us either by email yakbabiespodcast at gmail.com or you can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash shackbabies and contact us there. The Patreon, it only costs a dollar a month. Very, very, it's priced to move, let's say. And in exchange for that dollar, you get access to our bonus podcast. There's all kinds of fun stuff happening on the Patreon. There's games and bro bro conversations. We do a separate series about jokes, two whole series about jokes, where we run through 101 jokes and rank them in order of funniness. It's really a great time there. So check that out. And then also we have merch, tinyurl.com slash yakbabies where you can get access to that merch. There's posters and t-shirts, a bunch of new ones recently designed by Brick that are all really funny. Check out some of his demented yak art there and and purchase it for yourself. Until then, yak babies, yakking off. Patreon's kind of, um, they redid their main site or whatever, and now there's a free... You can just follow free on, on Patreon. You don't get access to the bonus stuff, just the regular things. Oh. But it's it can essentially replace our Twitter feed. So there's pictures of the merch, and then there's uh, you can just go there instead of anywhere else, and it can be it basically works as like a Tumblr homepage. Oh, cool. So we can go post our radical right-wing political views there? Yeah, that's already there. Excellent. The Yak Babies would like to thank all the loyal listeners, and especially their patrons, both past and present, including Michael. Bonnie, Sebastian, David, Roger, Kathleen, Bailey, Andrew, Gilbert, and William Howard Taft. Oh.